Amen. Reminds me of George Farrington. He's the one who taught me that, old Pastor George. And, you know, you can be having a bad week. And it, with that song stuck in your head, you can't be grumpy. It's just like, a, da, 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 you know, it's kind of, you know, happy-go-lucky, count your many blessings. It's good. And it fits the theme of what we've been going through here at the church for the last month. Where Today we're going to pick up in Psalm chapter 30. And uh, all the verses are behind me of where we'll be going. Uh, so Psalm chapter 30. And our theme that we've been working on in November is looking at psalms that are thankful psalms that kind of deal with Thanksgiving, the holiday in which, which I believe is probably embodies the, the, a Christian um, characteristic that we all as Christians should have day in and day out. Um, and I want to start by, by giving thanks over what happened last week um, we received word about a week and a half ago that Susan Giorgi, um, one of the missionaries we support in Italy, her father was in grave health. Um, he passed away um, last, I think it was Sunday night, or, or I think it was last Sunday night. Um, <clears throat> but by the end of this service, um, I had been notified that we had raised $1,500 to be able to get to them. And she wrote a letter to me and to the, to the church, and I want to read it right now. Um, I... I, I cried during the last service and everybody was in tears. So I'm trying to, to mentally get ice water flowing through my veins right now so that I can get through this so that you can hear it. So it's okay if you want to cry and I'm going to do my best not to cry. Uh, but it was, it's really powerful. Um, dear Pastor Gunner and Valley Baptist Church family, I honestly don't know where to start or how to find the words that can express my deep gratitude for all that you have done for me and my family this past week. My father has been ill for a very long time, but this past week brought a very unexpected event that took my father's life a little bit sooner than expected. Soon we left to go, since we left to go abroad to serve in Italy, I've always had a slight fear that I wouldn't make it back on time to be with my father if something ever happened. When I first got the news of my father's accident and the info of the reality that he would pass away, I was so burdened with grief and hit me and hit so many roadblocks trying to get home. When I surrendered all things to the Lord, he brought you and your giving hearts, and then he opened up the rest of the doors so smoothly. I arrived on Sunday afternoon and went straight to the hospital. Even though he could not speak or wake up, when he was told I was here and I began to speak to him, tears came out of his eyes. My heart was so gripped. I don't know what it meant, but I hope he knew that I was there. The next day, I spent hours with him by myself, praying, reading our Bible and singing to him. And that night, he passed away to be with the Lord. Uh, Thank you for giving me the opportunity to be here. It meant so much to me. God, in his tenderness and love, used you to answer a deep need in my heart. Thank you for your love and support. In his gracious love, Susan Giorgi. So it's powerful. And it was just so neat to, to, to kind of watch all of this kind of come together and, and keep praying for them. Um, I, I have a feeling that we'll see them. They've never really said anything, but I, they're going to be here for the holidays. So hopefully they can kind of zip down here. But if not, it's okay. Um, but keep praying for them. I don't know where they are in the, the funeral arrangements, but it's going to be a difficult time. It always is as we, as we mourn um, those that we love that passed away. Um, the good news is he's a believer, and although they're mourning because they miss him, and they'll, they rejoice knowing that they'll see him again in heaven. And so just pray for the family. And let's, I just want to take a time right now just to pray for them, and, and then we'll start. Father, I do thank you, Lord, for... Um, your loving kindness that endures forever. Father, we thank you that um, in the midst of this world that's scarred with sin and that we experience death, Lord, which you never intended. Um, Father, we, we thank you that we have hope in a risen Christ, Lord, so that we no longer have to fear death. Lord, we thank you that Susan um, has this joy in the midst of her mourning of losing her father. Um, Father, we Thank you for the hope that you've given her and given us in Christ. Father, we pray for Susan and her mom and her her siblings, um, Lord, for her children and all the grandchildren. 
We pray, Father, that through this time of preparation, Lord, that you would um, that you would minister to them, Lord, that you would help them just to, to make arrangements uh, for the funeral. And Lord, we ask that as the funeral happens, Lord, that um, you would use the believers and her family, Lord, to be a testimony of your your loving kindness, Lord, that people would uh, repent and, and turn their lives to you. Father, we love you, Lord. We praise you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so back to Psalm 30, or starting with Psalm chapter 30. Um, please excuse me today as I, I my voice is a little like raspy and my head's a little congested. I, I feel well, but... Um, you know, our bodies kind of give out on us. So let's read um, Psalm chapter 30, and I'm going to begin with the introduction. Psalm 30. A psalm, a song at the dedication of the house, a psalm of David. <clears throat> I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Now, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. O Lord, by your favor, You have made my mountain to stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I called. And to the Lord, I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned me You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this this text. Father, I pray that as we begin to study it, Lord, that your spirit would illuminate its meaning. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand the story that the psalm was written. And Father, we ask that you would soften our hearts, Lord, that you would help us to be sensitive to your voice, that we would grow grow closer to you, Father, that we would fall more in love with you. And Lord, that we would give you our lives. We thank you, Lord, uh, for your loving kindness that endures forever. We desire to be a thankful people, Lord. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the introduction, the very not all psalms have an introduction, but when they do, it's, it, it helps us to understand the kind of the behind the scenes of what's going on, that we would have greater insight to the psalm. And so here, our introduction, the first thing we see is it's a psalm. So that's very helpful. Like they put it in the right place in the Bible. It's a psalm. It's a, it's, so we learn it's a psalm. It's a song at the dedication of the house or the temple. The word in the Hebrew, you can translate it either way. Half the translations will use temple here. The other half will use house. I believe it's temple. And then I'll explain why. And then the last thing we learn is that it's a psalm of David. Now, suddenly you, I said, well, I believe that it's a temple. And that Saul, uh, that David wrote this, but David was never there when the temple was built. Solomon built, his son built the temple. And so in order to understand this, most people believe that this psalm was written during the events that happened in 2 Samuel 24, um, which we're not going to look at, but we're going to go to 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 21. And we're going to look at the story where most believe that this psalm fits, and I agree with them. And so we're going to look, it's, it's, in researching this psalm, I found myself mostly in First Chronicles. And so we're going to spend most of our time in First Chronicles understanding the background. And at the very end, we're going to fly through this psalm because it puts everything into perspective. So in First Chronicles, when we look at the Old Testament, so in First Chronicles chapter 1, we have, you know, there's Samuel that kind of tells the story of the first two kings, Samuel and David and how they rose. It's, it's the, 
almost the soap opera behind the story. You get the heart. You learn everything that's going on. Where Chronicles is more of the headline stories following the thought through the text. And so these two stories overlap. We see kind of the one story in 2 Samuel 24 and then a, a kind of a bigger picture story in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and 22. So that's why we're going to stay in, in chapters 21. If you want to do further research, you can go back to 2, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 24 and kind of see what I'm talking about. So in verse 21, or I'm sorry, in chapter 21, verse 1, we read, Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. This is a very interesting beginning. It says, then Satan basically stood up against Israel and he moved David to, to take a census. That to David to move, um, to take account of all of the men throughout Israel. In 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, that's the only verse I'm going to mention, is in that, in that verse, it kind of said that when David did this, it made God very angry. Like he was very upset that David did this. And so I have this word then circled in my Bible. Like, what is the then? Like, what what happened leading up to this point that would cause David to take a census? And I started kind of backing up, and you can go all through Chronicles, and you can see, wow, David was at war a lot. It was like he battled so-and-so, he battled so-and-so, he battled so-and-so, he battled so-and-so. Through most of those, almost all of those, God speaks of David very highly. And then we get to chapter 20. So I'm going to kind of back up. You can if you want to. But in First Chronicles chapter 20, we read, Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that Joab led the army and ravaged the land of the sons of Ammon and came and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Does that line sound familiar? Do you guys remember back in Psalm 51, David's repentance? And we looked at First Samuel chapter 23. This is where they're out battling and he, for the first time, stays back. And then he sees Bathsheba and he has this great sin with Bathsheba and the whole story unwinds. Nothing's mentioned of the drama behind the scenes here. But so David starts, he got his eyes off the Lord. And then we see here that Joab struck Rabbah and overthrew it. So Joab had victory there. Then in verse 4, we see that war broke out in Gezer with the Philistines. So now they're at battle with the Philistines. Verse 5, and there was war with the Philistines again. So another war with the Philistines. And then verse 6, we read, again there was war at Gath. And so this then in chapter 21, verse 1, that David was in a time of war. His, he'd lost a lot of men. He wanted, he's, he's in his own flesh, no longer trusting on the Lord. And you look at Israel today, you look at Israel over history, there's absolutely nothing mighty about Israel. The only way you can explain Israel's existence and their power militarily is that God's behind him. Because from a military man's perspective, it makes no sense. But David suddenly departed from God. And he's like, oh no. So he goes to his, what would be equivalent to General Petraeus, and he says, hey, we need to take a census. I need to figure out who are the fighting men. What do our numbers look like? We need to, to, to rally the troops. I, he's relying on his own strength to fight these battles that he was supposed to depend upon God on. And so in verse 2, we read, So David said to Joab, that's his general Petraeus, and to the princes of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan. So from the very southernmost region of Israel all the way to the far northern region of Israel. And bring me word that I may know their number. He says, go get me the number. Now, I think Joab was a good, godly general. And he looks at the king and he says in verse 3, Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. But my Lord, the king, they are not all the Lord's servants. Why does my Lord seek this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? And Joab says, listen, sir, um, king of Israel, I'm your general. God's put me in a th- under, under your authority. And I'll do whatever you want me to do, but, but aren't the warriors the Lord's? Isn't it God's responsibility to raise up the, the military men? This is the guy that was out fighting while David stayed back 
in Jerusalem with Bathsheba, he was the one who took victory. And he says, sir, maybe you should seek the Lord for, for your battles. He says, why are you doing this? You're going to put guilt upon our whole nation. But in verse 4, he says, you know what? But I spoke my peace respectfully to you. You're an authority over me. My taking this census isn't violating any of God's laws to my, for me. And so I'll do what you want because you're the leader. You're God's anointed leader. And he says, nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. So Joab goes out. He gets account of all of the men. He figures out. He finally returns to Jerusalem to give the report to the king. And he says in verse 5 that Joab gave the number of the census, all of the people to David. And all Israel were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. And Judah was 470,000 men who drew the sword. <clears throat> but he did not number the Levi and Benjamin, uh, number Levi and Benjamin among them. For the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. So he numbers everybody except the priestly line. And even in his doing this, that word abhorrent, I had to look it up in a dictionary just to double check. It means that he strongly disagreed. He was totally opposed to what the king was doing. And so he did this. He's like, I'm not going to number the priests. They're not to go to war. I'll give him his number. I'll go there. He says, David, you're wrong in doing this. David knew he was wrong doing this. And God agreed with Joab, verse 7. God was displeased with this thing, so he struck Israel. So God sees that, oh, King David, he wants to rely on his own strength. He just numbered. Oh, he sees he's got all these guys. He thinks he's secure because he, got, he has command and he can do all this. Why? Well, he struck Israel. And David suddenly sees all his men dying. He's like, uh-oh. I made a mistake. And in verse 8, we see that David's going to repent. I, I want to, in our, this story, as a caution to sin in our lives, forgiveness and consequence are two different things. We often think consequence and forgiveness are the same thing. So God can forgive us, but there are consequences often for our sin that restrict us. And David's going to face a major consequence of his sinful nature before the Lord in this story. But David repents in verse 8. He said, David said to God, I've sinned greatly in that I've done this thing, but now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. He sees the Lord striking Israel all around. doesn't really tell us exactly what's happening, but he realizes what he did was wrong. And so he repents. This is where we see that David had the heart after God. David was a man after God's own heart is the right way to say that. Then verse 9, the Lord spoke to Gad. So this is David's seer. He doesn't respond to David directly. He goes to this guy, Gad, saying, go and speak to David, saying, thus says the Lord, I will offer you three things. Choose for yourself which one of you I will do to you. Now, as we go through these things, there's three choices. There's three choices. The first is a three-year famine. The second is a three-month, basically, having all of your enemies annihilate your nation. And the third choice is three days of God's wrath upon your nation. I'm going to ask you, which one do you want to choose? So pay attention when I read this. Thus says the Lord, take for yourself either three years of famine or three months to be swept away before your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you or else three days of the sword of the Lord. Even pestilence in the land and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now, therefore, consider what answer I shall return to him who sent me. This was a little debate Anna and I had in our house last night. And I kind of forgot which one David chose. Like, I kind of stopped and we started talking. And so who goes for door number one? Three years of famine. Any takers? Number two, to have your enemies take you by like sword, like heavy ammunition and like military might. Number three, God's three days of wrath. Option number four, which I gave the last service and everybody pretty much chose, was none of the above to like get out of it somehow. Everybody pretty much wanted none of the above. I chose the last option. You know, I was like, hey, I only got three. <clears throat> Let's rip the Band-Aid off fast. Let's just get it over with. Let's just. And that's what David chose. But David, it wasn't that easy. In verse 13, we see David said to Gad, 
I am in great distress. You think? Yeah. Uh-oh. Man, this is really what I... I thought my Bathsheba thing was bad. This is... Uh-oh. I am in trouble here. I'm in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. I think... Uh, uh, we obvious the obvious reason is that he says, you know, God is merciful. His loving kindness in, is everlasting, endures forever. I also think he chose it, but it doesn't say this is just Gunner's two cents, my opinion, which means nothing. Um, but it's just my opinion, so I'm going to share it because I'm up here. And, and I've been thinking and praying about the story. I really believe through other texts that David didn't want the enemies of Israel to have any joy in, like, taking them down because it would shame God. And he wa- he would rather take God's wrath than to see his enemies and the enemies of God say, oh, who's your God now? That we're just d- steamrolling you. And so David takes his choice. He answers immediately, verse 14. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel. 70,000 men of Israel fell. Dead. Here's the king trying to defend his nation. He just sees 70,000 shooters gone. Oh, no. How am I going to protect the nation now? And this is just the beginning. God's just getting warmed up. But can you imagine he gets word 70,000 guys? No, what's three days? We're not even in five minutes into this. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and was, was sorry over the calamity. And he said to the destroying angel, it is enough. Now relax your hand. So God sends this angel. This angel's coming down. He's about to just wreak havoc on Jerusalem. And God's like, oh, man, I love them so much. Hey, hold on. Before you go crazy, just put your hand back and calm down. Now, I think a different angel appears in the last half of this verse. It says, And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Now, most most conservative scholars, when you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, they believe that this was the pre-incarnate Christ, which means, you know, Christmas is coming. We celebrate the birth of Jesus. Jesus existed in eternity past and eternity future. He's God. But when the birth of Christ is referred to the incarnation, that Jesus became man. And so when we refer to the pre-incarnate Christ, well, Jesus has always been. He always was. He will always be. And so the pre-incarnate Christ that these appearings on during the Old Testament, is Jesus comes as an angel, the angel of the Lord. And the reason they believe that this is the pre-incarnate Christ and why I'm with them is whenever this angel appears, something divine that only God can do happens, the people who see this angel respond as if they're looking at God himself and the angel never corrects them. He receives divine praise, you know, that he shouldn't if he isn't God. But this is a bad angel. I mean, this is like, when I say bad, it means good. Like this guy is amazing. This guy has all of the power. And I'm going to kind of pause the story here because when we see that this angel standing at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, Ornan's a guy's name. We don't use this name very often, and I don't even remember ever meeting a little boy that just was named Ornan. Um, Orbel Redenbacher, I think, is the closest I can remember. <clears throat> but the spot where he's standing... This is Mount Moriah. This is the place where Abraham went and was about to sacrifice Isaac. This is the place where the temple was built. Um, This is the place when Jesus on the cross, the the, the veil was torn. And so I'm going to ask Alberto to kill all the lights. And uh, we're going to have a little slideshow. I want to help get this into perspective here. We'll go to the next slide. I think my laser's good. Okay, I'm going to start from modern day just to kind of help orientate us. This this is, this is was Jerusalem in, in September when I was there. <clears throat> I took this picture from 
the Mount of Olives, looking at the Dome of the Rock, which we're familiar with this picture. This is in present day is a Muslim mosque. Uh, they've taken the story from the Old Testament, and they say that Isaac almost uh, was to sacrifice Ishmael. But this was the temple that was built by Solomon, uh, or the location, the, the remains of it. And, and so this is looking, it's a steep cliff down and a steep cliff up, looking towards um, Mount Moriah. So this is the place where the angel of the Lord was standing in the story. Next slide, please. <clears throat> so now... What I did is this is my story from Jerusalem. This is King David's city. This is the uh, Jerusalem during David's reign. And basically, I'm looking back at Mount of Olives. So I was standing up here when I took that previous picture looking across. And you can kind of see those are all tombs along there. So you can see the steep hill going down. And then this is the Kidron Valley down through here. And then it's a steep cliff going up just to kind of help give us a lay of the land. Okay, next slide. So this is Jerusalem during King David's life. So this is David's city today, or it was what it was then. You see this little trail walk going all the way up, and at the very top, that's Ornan's little piece of property. This is where the angel of the Lord is standing. Today, this is where the Dome of the Rock is. So can you go back to that first slide? So that little top, just kind of picture this. Israel's changed a lot since then. So that is the top of the hill. So you'd walk down the hill and you get to King David's city. It's still there. You can see it. Makes everybody with me? Okay, now go back to King David's city. Okay, so now what we're going to do is the next slide. Don't go there yet. Um, the walls of Jerusalem, the old city today, and, and when they built it, kind of go around this. There's a little upper hill here. And it goes all the way around and... Click that slide just to kind of keep us in. So this is, just to kind of orientate you, this is Kidron Valley. This is the Mount of Olives. This is the Temple Mount. It's huge. I think it's like eight football fields. This is the Dome of the Rock right here. And these are the walls of Jerusalem. An interesting side story. Um, the person, the, the lady that had spent a year in Israel last service, she couldn't answer the question. She couldn't tell me I'm wrong. So Mara might be able to tell me I'm wrong. Um, <clears throat> but when I was there, you see this finger right here. This is King David's city. So it, it would have been built up, but this little model doesn't have it. But this is King David's city. And so he would have walked up the hill all the way up there to the temple. Does that make sense? Can you guys see the two pictures? Now, when I was there, and this is, I, I haven't been able to prove this or not prove this, but I said, well, why in the world did they not build the temple walls all the way out and around? And they said, you know what? The engineer was told that he was supposed to, but he made a miscalculation. And so he didn't include the walls to go around. And King Herod, when this happened, he executed the guy. And right here is Jaffa Gate. And he, the rumor is that he's buried in Jaffa Gate. So that was a very, that was his last mistake he made as an engineer. And so we're going to, we're going to go back to the um, King David city just so we kind of have it all in perspective. And and so our story that we're reading right now, this is how Jerusalem looked. So we can kind of get a mental picture. I'm going to ask Alberto just to turn on the back fluorescent lights. I'm going to preach the next part kind of in the dark, which is OK. Everybody can kind of see well enough your Bibles because <clears throat> I want us to kind of see this picture. So here we are, the very last part of verse 15. And the angel of the Lord was standing on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So here, the, the, the angel of the Lord standing up here. And the story is about to unfold. I, you know, Anna, this is another story. Like some of us are probably just imagining like a human-sized angel, like a guy that's about six feet tall. <clears throat> In reading this, I kind of think he's significantly bigger. I'll let you be the judge. Verse 16. <clears throat> then David lifted up his eyes. And saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven. So, uh-oh, go back. We got clicked off. So David's down here. The angel of the Lord's up here. He lifts up his eyes. And the way the scripture records it is that this angel standing between earth and heaven. So I think the technical term for this angel is he was gigantuan. Like huge. I, I think he looked up and he sees the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven. And then, uh, with his drawn sword in his hand, stretched out over Jerusalem. So here's the angel of the Lord standing up there. He's got a sword. I'm left-handed, so I imagine in the left hand, 
his feet up there and the sword all the way down over this finger. How do you think he'd respond if you like just prayed to God and was like, oh, man, you'd fall on your face saying, mommy, mommy. Well, what he said was, Lord, 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 I'm really sorry. And we're going to see the valor of David. I, I think that he's a courageous man. So here's the picture. So here's the angel. I mean, imagine that angel standing there and this sword over your whole town. Like this is a huge sword. Now I'll find my place. Okay. Standing between heaven and earth with a sword drawn and is stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders covered with sackcloths fell on their faces. That seems very natural to me. <laughs> you can't run from that, you know, like what are you going to do? Verse 17, David said to God, is it not I who commanded to count the people? Indeed, I am the one who has sinned and done very wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Oh, Lord, my God, please let your hand be against me and my father's household, but not against your people that they should be plagued. This is courageous. This angel is huge, holding a sword that extends over your whole town. He stands up and he's like, Lord, don't let the Israelites face this. It's my sin. May it fall on me and my household. That's a bold mood. I sin. Take me. He do, see, he doesn't realize that God's already shown his mercy. He doesn't realize that God withdrew the angel that was striking. He just sees this huge angel with a sword over his town. And he says, Lord, it was my fault. Let me have it. You take me to the woodshed. These, the rest of Israel, they're, they're innocent. Joab went against me. He said, don't do this. And I think that that's why David's known for being a man after God's own heart. Say, don't let, you know, there are people who would run and say, oh, let them have it. Has King Hezekiah, when he found out about this, he said, oh, well, I'll be, I'll be gone. Better them than me. Looking at the future Israelite generation that would be taking God's wrath. Verse 18, then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad. So he's still not speaking to David. He's speaking to the seer commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So the angel of the Lord, huge thing, sword in his hand, standing there, tells the messenger to David, tell David to walk up to me and to make an offering there. Like, it doesn't say that the angel left. Can you imagine how scary that would be to walk up that trail to this angel with the sword out? It's like, okay, well, did I really mean that when I said, let it be on me? But he was serious. Verse 19, so David went up at the word of Gad, which he spoke in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned back and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him and hid themselves And Ornan was threshing wheat. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and prostrated himself before David with his face to the ground. So here's Ornan. He's a country boy. He lives way outside of the town. He's not in the city. He's not in the walls. He's out, you know, he's a blue collar man. He's threshing whatever he's, what is it, wheat or something? He's, he's, he's on the threshing floor doing threshing stuff. Him and his four boys, they look up and they say, wow. That's not good. <laughs> then you see the king of Israel walking up the path. And they're like, well, let's get, let's get down on our, you know, let's go. Down, like, let's start. David, I don't know what's going on, but can we be dismissed from this? We are. We didn't do anything. I don't, can we leave, please? And so the king is as he's approaching. OK, verse 22. Then David said to or- Ornan. Give me the site of this threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. For the full price, you shall give it to me that the plague may be restrained from the people. David says, I need a, what's it called when the government kind of takes over some land? It's a eminent domain. He says, sorry, sorry, guys, I'll give you top dollar 
but we need this to stop this plague that's going on. David, at this point, has no idea that God's been merciful. He still feels God's wrath. He's at the shoelaces of a huge angel with a sword over his town. And he's like, we need to buy whatever you need. We'll give you a top dollar if we can have this, because this is the answer to our problems. I'll buy it from you. And I imagine a stuttering ornate <laughs> said to David, verse 23, take it for yourself. And let my Lord the King do what is good in his sight. See, I will give the oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for wood and the wheat for grain offering. I'll give it all. It's all yours, David. You don't have to pay me for it. The ox, everything. You need it to stop this. It's yours. And then David says, I love this verse. But King David said to Ornan, no, but I will surely buy it for the full price. For I will not take what is yours for the Lord or offer a burnt offering, which costs me nothing. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. Then David built an altar to the Lord there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And he called the Lord and he answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offerings. So he immediately takes his goat, his cow, and he makes these offerings, a peace was a peace offering, a burnt offering and a peace offering. He makes it right on that little piece of land. And as he makes it, fire from heaven comes and consumes it. <clears throat> I'm sure he lost his eyebrows during this, but I don't know. But it's like, I mean, this is fire from heaven taking the offering. And the Lord commanded the angel and he put the sword back in his sheath. So then David sees this huge angel. Can you imagine the relief of David at this point? Oh, praise the Lord. <laughs> you, you are so merciful. I was toast. I was dead. You had mercy on me. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan and the Jebusite, he offered a sacrifice. Wait, did I just read? Uh, he offered a sacrifice there. Uh, for the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, <clears throat> had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering were in the high places at Gibeon at the time. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was terrified by the sword of the angel of the Lord. So he looked up that sword. He looked up, saw the angel, saw the sword over him, and he was pinned down. He's like, I can't go any. I can't get to where the tabernacle is to talk to God. And then the story of chapter 22 continues. Then David said, this is the house of the Lord God. And this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. So David gave orders to gather the foreigners who were in the land of Israel. He set stone cutters to hew out stones to build the house of God. And when we say stone cutter, we're not talking about little red bricks. These bricks at the temple, I think they weigh 20 tons. They are huge, size of Volkswagen bugs. Like, so these are real stone cutters. <clears throat> David prepared large quantities of iron to make the nails for the doors and the gates and for the clamps and more bronze than could be weighed. And timbers of cedar logs beyond number for the Sidians and the Tyrans brought large quantities of cedar to, to timber to David. David's son said, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord shall be exceedingly magnificent, famous and glorious throughout all lands. Therefore now I will make preparation for it. So David made ample preparations before his death. We're going to see when he calls his son, David's like, okay, I'm getting stone cutters. I'm going to get all the iron. I'm going to get all the bronze. I'm going to get all the lumber. I'm going to get everything set so that when Solomon becomes king, all he has to do is turn the key and it's going to happen. He says, oh, man, you know, my sniffly nose little boy who's, I don't know, 14, 15. He's like, man, he... He doesn't know what he's doing. He hasn't become king to ask for wisdom yet. Like he, he's just a teenager. And David's like, man, the task that he has, his temple is going to be glorious. So I can't build it. God has restricted me, given me the consequence that I can't build it. He wants nothing more than to build this temple. 
But he's going to get everything set up. He got everything taken care of so that before he died, everything was ready to go that Solomon could just come in and build the temple. And then as he gets everything ready, he pulls his son to him. And I wish I could... The, the tension here of a father like saying, son, what I'm about to say to you is very, very serious. <clears throat> Verse 6. Then he called his son Solomon and charged to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. David said to Solomon, my son, I had intended to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. David says, you know what, Solomon, I wanted to do this. I'm supposed to build a house to the Lord. But because of my sin, because of all the stuff I've done, God said, no, you can't. I need you to do it. Verse nine, behold. A son will be born to you. So David's still quoting to Solomon what God said to him. God told him about Solomon. Behold, a son will be born to you who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. Solomon lived during an era of peace that Israel has not ever seen before or since. There was total peace during Solomon's reign. He shall build a house for my name. So Solomon gets the commission through his father from God that Solomon's to build the temple. And he shall be my son and I will be his father and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, my son, the Lord be with you that you may be successful and build the house of the Lord your God, just as he has spoken concerning you. Only the Lord give you discretion and understanding and give you charge over Israel so that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper. And boy, did he prosper. You, take, you don't even take inflation into consideration. And Solomon was the wealthiest man of history by far, second to none. If you be careful to observe the statutes of the ordinances which the Lord commanded Moses concerning Israel. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear nor be dismayed. He's quoting from Joshua saying, now, can you imagine this young little Solomon? There's no wonder why he asked for wisdom. He had a God sized task before him. And then David, we're not going to read verse 14, 15 and, and 16 and 17 and 18. But but basically, David says, listen, I have all your supplies ready to go. All the material that you need is taken care of. All the labors that you need to construct the temple are there. All of the support that you need from the leaders of Israel, I've talked to them and they're behind you. You just need to do it. And then in verse 19, we read, Now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. Arise, therefore, and build the sanctuary of the Lord God, so that you may bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and holy vessels of God into the house that is to be built for the name of the Lord. Now, when David reached an old age, he made his son Solomon king over Israel. David didn't die and then Solomon became king. He said, I'm getting old. You are going to be the next king. You're king now. And I, when I read this and when I've been thinking about this story in light of our church, this George Farrington, for those of you who know him, he was the pa- he's the longest running pastor at this church, and it was during the 60s. And then he retired, and he was here for another 15 years. So he has been like the shepherd of this church for many, many years. And when I got here three and a half years ago, when I'd whittled down to 12 or 14 people, there's a little dispute between me and Alberto over how many there were, but that's okay. Uh, not very many people. And Alberto was the youth group. And we were having these meetings about how are we going to do this? How are we going to go about? And I'll never forget, there was a little meeting in the back room. And basically, the leadership of the church is anybody who wanted to show up. And so there were about six of us of the 14. And like George and Evie were there faithfully, every single one. And I'll never forget one of the very early meetings. I said, you know what? We're just going to take this really slow. Because... You know what? Nobody likes change. It's going to be difficult. So we'll just kind of ease into it. We'll go really slow. 
And for those of you know who, who know Evie, this story will make more sense to you. She's from New York, so that kind of helps everybody understand a little bit. You can move somebody out of New York, but you can't take the New Yorker out of them. And she, if she could have grabbed me by the collar, she would have, but I was out of striking distance. And she looked at me and she said, son, listen here. We're dying. We want to see what the Lord's doing before we die. So you move quickly. Everybody out there, they don't know Jesus and they're perishing and they need to know Jesus and you do whatever you have to do. And I was like, goosebumps. And I kind of sensed that this was David with Solomon. I can't do it. You go. Run. Take charge of this. And by Second Chronicles chapter 3, we see that Solomon begins building the temple. Now, what's Solomon known for? He knows wisdom. He, all his books are wisdom literature. What David's known for being more of a rock star. He likes music, playing the harp, everything that I don't do, like musically. Do you think that David, in his preparations of everything that he did, do you think he would leave out a song to be sung at the dedication? No way. He wrote this, this Psalm chapter 30. We can go over there now. Now we're actually, when we have about 10 minutes to go, I told you we weren't going to spend much time with this psalm. I believe David, as he was sitting there on Mount Moriah, we can, we can kick on the lights too so we can see, please. Um, as he was on Mount Moriah, I think this psalm was written then, and then he said, listen, when they build the temple, this is the song that I want sung at the dedication. To date, at every at the second temple, um, at the rebuilding of the temple under Herod, they sang this psalm. Every Hanukkah, which is coming up during this time, Hanukkah is the celebration um, during the Maccabean revolt. The silent 400 years, 400 years before Christ, are referred to the silent years. During that time, the temple worship was shut down. The Maccabean brothers staged a revolt, and then basically they took over the temple again so that worship could begin happening and sacrifices could be made at the temple. And so Hanukkah is the lighting of the temple again. When you, the little, uh, is it a mandorah? What was it called? Menorah. When they light that, it's to symbolize the temple coming alive. And every Hanukkah, this is the psalm that they go to. I believe when the temple is, when the temple is built again and there's already a part, there's a planning, there's a whole commission in Israel right now planning the temple to be built again. And from scripture, it will be built again when Jesus comes back. And I believe that this psalm will be sung at that commissioning. So this is powerful, the background story. What does David have to tell us? I will exalt you, O Lord. I will worship you. I will praise you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and not let my enemies rejoice over me. He said, Lord, you took me to the woodshed. You didn't let them come. Your name Stayed holy. Your name was not reviled by my enemies. And this lifted up. It's this picture of, of a well being, a, a bucket being sunk into a well and being lifted up so that you lifted me up from death. He was there with the Lord thinking he was going to die. He says, Oh Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. Oh Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. And he's just praising God for his mercy, that God had mercy on him. David knew how horrible his sin was and how good God was. And mercy means not getting something that you deserve. Mercy means that God was supposed to annihilate David and he didn't. He withheld his judgment. Grace is receiving that you, something you don't deserve. God blessed David beyond measure. He didn't deserve that. Then David looks at the people. And he says, sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. I believe that this is the theme of the whole psalm, that people who love God should praise his name all the day long, should give thanks to him in everything. Verse 5, for his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. 
This verse is, I think, quoted or will be quoted in Isaiah 54. This we just we've been going through Isaiah. I didn't time this. God is amazing how He does stuff. But on Wednesday night we went through Isaiah 54. In Isaiah 54 verses 7 through 8, they're not. They ha- the southern kingdom hadn't been taken captive by the Babylonians. It was yet to come, about a hundred years out. God looks beyond the captivity and then says, beyond all the way to the Millennium Kingdom, which hasn't happened yet. And he says, my anger is but a moment, but my graciousness is forever. And we were like, one of the things we talked about, we're like, wow, this is, um, you know, they got taken into captivity in 722 BC and then in 586 BC. And they still yet have not received the promise that God was talking about. And God refers to it as a moment. And so our lifetime is a flash in the pan. We are, I think, a little dude, like, like, if you live 150 years, I don't know that anybody's ever done that in modern, in our history. Let's just say that would be like a long time. If you lived to be 150 years, that'd be forever. In light of eternity, it's nothing. And this psalm, I had no idea, but about, it was 14 months ago, August 17th of last year. This psalm, this verse 5, became kind of like our family psalm. You see, Anna was due... I think, I don't know when exactly she was due. The baby came August 24th, Elizabeth. On August 17th, her grandmother died. That morning we woke up and we said, your your due date's in like three days. Do we drive to San Luis Obispo? And we said, let's go. We called the nurse. They said, just go, be with your grandma. Halfway up, we uh, got word that she had passed away. And I remember like just, like here I am as a husband, like, how do you minister to your wife? Here she is with on the range of emotions from joy on one end to total like discouragement and sadness on the other that they intersected right at that moment. Here we are joyful that this baby's going to come, yet terribly sad that our grandma died. And then once we got through that season, this verse was like, she's like, this is that, that era of my life, this is the verse. <clears throat> Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. We can go through terribly difficult times and you get to the end of it. God can discipline you and you think, I don't even know how I'm going to bear up under this. You get to the end and God's discipline always leads to joy. Always. Even if it's in the next lifetime. He goes on to say, now as for me, I said in my prosperity, David had all kind of prosperity. I think it's harder to praise God when everything's going good, I know I went through Ecclesiastes. So many people said, yeah, right. Give me, give, you know, like in Fiddler on the Roof, Lord, may you smite me with wealth. You know, like may I, if it's so bad, you know, like then let me suffer being rich. <clears throat> but remember, David had it all. And David's sin was that he stopped trusting in the Lord. And so for him to say, Lord, in my prosperity, I will never be moved. You're my rock. Oh, Lord, your your favor, you have made my mountain to stand strong. Remember that picture that that Jerusalem is like a little mountain with a huge ravine all the way around it, surrounded by mountains. And David, I literally say, my mountain, my city, I will not be moved. You hid your face. I was dismayed to you, O Lord, I called. And to the Lord, I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? He's like, my life is nothing. I go to die. It doesn't mean anything. Verse 10, hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. Notice that. I'd circle my helper. David was relying on his own strength. In his repentance, he realized that he needed to trust in the Lord. It's not about how fat your bank account is or how thin it is. It's not about how much your ever you know, all of the securities we can build up. But your strength needs to come from the Lord. You could have nothing and be you're totally secure on Christ alone. And he says, You're my helper. The, my armies, my troops, my leaders, this land, this city, this kingdom that I'm king over, that's not where my strength comes from. My strength comes from you. You are my helper. You've turned for me my morning into dancing. I love this. In this verse, we're going to see morning to dancing, sadness to joy. You've loosed my sackcloth, which that was morning. They put these basically potato sack beds, you know what I mean? Like whatever the 
Gur, what is it stuff called? Berber kind of stuff. I mean, it was mourning, sadness. They'd have dust on their heads. He said, and you girded me with gladness. Verse 12 is the key. And is our response that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. Oh, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. And today, you know, during Thanksgiving, when I started kind of last year, I think, is, is I really like Thanksgiving. I think that it embodies Christian values and things that we should stand for day by day. And so what I, I kind of try to evaluate, okay, who are the people who serve day in, day out, are faithful to the church on a weekly basis, however, that, you know, even if it's not a weekly, and to give thanks to them. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go buy a couple gift cards, and I'll bring people up. And then when I started looking at the list, like the list kind of like grew. And, and then I'm like, well, I'm afraid to call people up because I'm certainly going to miss somebody. I've already re- remembered one person I missed and I've already apologized and said I have an IOU coming for a thank you card. But I'm like, man, if we're going to do that, we're going to have like, we're going to have to just turn this into an awards banquet. We're not going to have time to teach the Bible. But when I look at this church and the restarting Like, I think of George, count your blessings. That was his song. And in this story, I feel more like Solomon than I do David. I came here and for this church is 50, 60 years old. People have made sacrifices for this building, for this land. And then they prepared it and they said, George, Navi, listen, they don't know Jesus. We want this land to use by God. We want this church to reach people for Christ. We want to disciple people here. We want to make an impact in the kingdom here. So, okay, Lord, I'll, George, I'll do my best. God, give me wisdom. Help me. And to see that today, like, when, there's like 37 people I had to thank. We started with 12. It's tripled. Of pe- and that's just people serving. And I think the beauty is, and that's a high percentage of the church. I have buddies all the time that say, hey, Gunnar, isn't it killing you? You're getting to the number where like you're having to do everything. I'm like, no, man, there's so many people that serve. I take Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, which is up there seriously. It says that my role, my exclusive role, like my main role is to equip y'all for ministry, whether it's in this church or it's outside. This building is just a building. This isn't my church. This isn't your church. It's the Lord's church. The people are the church. So how can you own your own? It's not. We're the bride of Christ. And so it's his church. And we say, Lord, what do you want us to do? And then we respond. And if you aren't serving, let me know. I'll try to find a way to plug in. I'll find out where your gift set is. And verse 12 is the heart. I don't, I forget, I have it, I could find it, but there, like, there, uh, tons of churches close their doors and go under every single day. Churches are dying left and right in our nation. The church in Europe is almost dead completely, and America's on that path. <clears throat> in order for us to stay alive, verse 12 is the key. That we will sing praises to you and not be silent. Oh, my Lord, I'll give thanks to you forever. We turn to God. It's his church. Lord, what do you want us to do? Lord, we want to be used by you. And so tonight, this is awesome. Like the Spanish ministry has been growing. The only time the church is to be divided, and I tell this to the Spanish group all the time, is when football or soccer is on the line. It's okay to be divided then because I'll go for America. And then when America gets popped out, then I go for Spain. And you go for whatever your country you want to go for. But we're one in Christ. And so we're going we're gonna to get together. After the service, we're going to pull all the Bibles out. We're going to get these chairs out of here. And, we're, and at 1230, these tables are coming. We're going to have 130 seats in here. And we're going to just eat and feast and fellowship with one another. And we're going to be speaking Spanglish. That's what I'm going to do as best as I can do. Like, don't be shy. Like, try to communicate. Because you know what? One day we'll all be able to speak the same language together. And we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And tonight is just so sweet. And it's an opportunity for us to, to sing praises to the Lord, to give him thanks, to love on one another and encourage one another. And so I'll end with that. So, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, I thank you for the life of David, this man after God's your own heart. But he's not perfect. And he made all kind of mistakes. And, Lord, that's encouraging to me. 
to know that I can make mistakes and I'm not perfect. I don't. I know I'm not perfect. And and Lord, to know that when we repent, when we turn our hearts to you, that you're faithful to cleanse us, that you restore us, that you work with us. Father, we thank you that the longer that we walk with you, we see how holy you are. And Lord, that our that you convict us, Lord, that you work in our lives. And Father, we're all going through difficult stuff, Lord. Either we're in the midst of a storm, we're coming out of a storm, or we're heading into one. And Father, I pray that you would give us hearts like Job when he said after hearing the destruction of his family and everything that he said, he said, Lord, the Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Father, may we learn to bless you regardless of our circumstances. As the Apostle Paul said, Lord, he's learned to be content in all things, whether much or little, that in Christ he can endure all things. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to surrender our lives to you, that we would have open hands and willing feet, and, Lord, that we would be willing to be used by you. May we praise you all the day long. May we give you our thanks. We love you, Father, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as you're able.